This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With great looking templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com slash manliness for that free trial. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. I've dealt with depression in my life. My body temperature also seems to run hot. In fact, my wife Kate has nicknamed me the baked potato. My guest today says there may be a connection between those two things. His name is Charles Raison. He's a psychiatrist, professor of psychiatry, and the co-author of the new mind-body science of depression. We begin our conversation with why Charles thinks it's important to ask the question, does major depression even exist? And what we do and don't know about what causes depression. We then turn to the emerging theory that physical inflammation may play a role in depression. Charles describes what inflammation is and why the body may become inflamed and physically hotter, not only in response to physical illness, but psychological stress as well. We then discuss the paradoxical finding that short-term exposure to inflammation in the form of exercise or sitting in a sauna can reduce long-term inflammation and how hot you probably have to get in a sauna for it to have antidepressant effects. We also talk about how intermittent fasting may have a beneficial effect on inflammation before turning to whether taking anti-inflammatory drugs could also help and why you might want to get a blood test to see if your body's inflamed. We end a conversation with Charles thoughts on how to figure out the right treatment for depression for each individual. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash inflammation depression. All right, Dr. Charles Raison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you are a psychiatrist, you're at the University of Wisconsin, and you got this book out called The New Mind-Body Science of Depression. I really enjoyed it. It was basically having like all the latest research about depression in like one place. But tell us about your background and like what's the approach you take at looking at d- depression and treating depression. Mm, yeah. So I am a psychiatrist and I started life actually as a full-time clinician back in the 90s. And I got more and more interested in doing research and was very interested, always sort of interested in mind-body stuff and questions around, you know, consciousness and conscious experience, things that are sort of very au courant right now that were a little bit more on the fringe, I think, when I was interested in these things. But I actually became a researcher to try to understand how bodily processes might be harnessed to enhance mental states. I was really interested in certain very advanced Tibetan Buddhist meditation practices. So I became a researcher and and spent a number of years looking at how inflammation produces depression and how inflammatory processes, how they alter the brain. And I was always kind of a depression guy, but one of the implications of this was that, you know, if inflammation can cause depression, maybe if we use one of these really powerful anti-inflammatory cytokine blockers that are out now for treating things like psoriasis and such, that maybe if we did that, we would discover a brand new antidepressant. And as it turned out, that wasn't true. There's an interesting story there. But that got me into the this sort of business of, of trying to discover new treatments for depression in general, and especially old new treatments. So a lot of the work I do these days is, is not just inflammation, but looking at things I call ancient practices, things that humans discovered repeatedly across history, 
often used for spiritual purposes or healing purposes that I'm trying to retrofit and, and look at as antidepressant strategies. So we've done work with with heat, with hyperthermia, and I'm much involved in this movement currently to see if psychedelic medicines might have promise for the treatment of depression. So long answer to a short question, but that that's pretty much who I am. Yeah, that's the way I discovered you was your research about the connection between inflammation and depression. We'll get into that to the bit because that's it's novel, it's different. A lot of people don't connect inflammation and depression. So we'll get to that here in a bit. But let's start off with this question. In the beginning of your book, The New Mind, Body, Science of Depression, you start the book off with your co-author with this provocative question. Does major depression even exist? And I'm sure there's people who are listening to this episode who have experienced major depression or know someone who has. So they're probably thinking, well, this is a really silly question. Of course it does. But why do you think it's important as a depression researcher that you ask that basic question? Yeah, it's a key question. And I've been depressed myself, so I'm right with them. So, you know, my my co-author, Vlad Malatek, he's also very eloquent about this. And there's a couple of ways in which depression doesn't exist. It doesn't exist as a single thing. That's for sure, right? So we know, in fact, in the largest antidepressant study ever done, they went back and looked at sort of the different patterns of symptoms people could have. They had like 4,000 people in the study and they had like 2,000 different presentations. So in a 4,000 person group, there were like 2,000 sort of different depressions. And if you look at how, you know, there's this thing called the DSM, which is the guidebook for mental health, and it it lays out the criteria for depression. You got to have five out of nine symptoms, well, that means actually that you, you could two people could be depressed and share one symptom in common and have everything else different. Um, so that's the first thing, is that it, it doesn't exist as a single thing. The second thing is that th- there have been a lot of studies that, that suggest, I think rightly, that on average, depression tends to be associated with certain changes in the way the brain and the body function. But there's no one thing that causes depression, right? So for instance, you know, if you got type one diabetes, the reason you got type one diabetes is because there's these cells in your pancreas that make insulin called, you know, beta cells and they get wiped out, right? And if you wipe out the beta cells, you got type one diabetes. Um, That's what it is. There's nothing like that for depression, right? There's no single abnormality that all depressed people have to have, or is there an abnormality that, that causes depression in all people? So it's not a disease state that way. It it may be a thousand different disease states, each one very specific, and we just can't find them. Or it may be that there's a thousand little contributors and on average to any given person's depression, biological contributors. So, you know, if you say, well, so what is depression? Well, I like the question because it's also not true that it just flat out doesn't exist. It does exist. It it kind of exists the way Buddhists think the world exists, which is sort of conventionally and provisionally. Depression is is a set of symptoms, and it's a disorder that's characterized by people demonstrating or reporting a series of symptoms, you know, much the way most 19th century diseases were, right? So you look at things like pleurisy and lumbago and things like this. They were symptom-based diseases, and that that's what depression is. So you know, for instance, people often want to try to find a biomarker for depression, you know, some kind of blood test. Um, but, you know, even a little bit of thought shows that that's kind of a fool's errand because, you know, if, if, if the biomarker was absolutely positive, but you felt great, no doctor would say, you're horribly depressed, you just don't know it. And conversely, if the biomarker was normal, but you're suicidal and depressed, nobody would say, well, you can't be depressed, the biomarker's 
off, right? Depression is a phenomenological condition. It, it, it is as it does and as it says. Now, having said that, I said it's not nothing either. It is a tendency. It's like a cloud. It's like a quantum cloud, right? That, so, you know, if you get really depressed, if your mood gets really down, you're very likely to pull in the other symptoms of depression. That, that's how they came to form the disorder. So almost always when humans get catastrophically depressed, they get changes in their sleep, they get changes in their appetite, they start having trouble thinking, they often are exhausted, uh, they, they begin to think about suicide. All over the world, even in like hunter-gatherer tribes, this is the case, right? So what I sometimes say is, you know, if people want my opinion, so what is depression? I, I like to say that it, it is the most standard, most common way that human beings break down under adversity. And that is why you see depression in every culture. That's why depression tracks both with personal adversity and, and societal adversity and why it tends to have the same symptoms all over the world because it, 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 it is, you know, we have a genetic heritage that, that all of us to one degree or other uh, makes us susceptible to developing this syndrome when, uh, when bad things happen to us. Let's talk about the causes of depression, at least the, the common explanations that are put out there for the causes of depression. What are those? Mm. Well, you know, so it's really interesting. The, the official line in the field is that we, we don't know what causes depression because we don't know what causes any psychiatric illness, right? But, you know, that's actually not true. And, and, and this is something I make, we make much of in the book. You know, like other illnesses, like other psychiatric illnesses, and actually like a lot of other medical illnesses, depression seems to arise usually from a, an interaction between a genetic vulnerability and an environmental circumstance. And so that being the case, you know, you know, there's this idea that depression is just sort of a, a brain disorder or it's a, you know, neurotransmitter deficiency or something. Well, those sorts of ideas suggest that, you know, there should be a gene. And if we knew what the gene was, then you have the answer. And we really have not been able to find genes very well. It wasn't until a couple of years ago, even maybe a year ago, that we actually finally had a study with enough people in it to find reliably a risk factor gene for depression. I mean, there have been a lot of studies looking at genes for depression, but they were all very flawed. So we don't really know very much genetically about what causes depression. But on the other hand, we know exactly what causes depression environmentally. Uh, and this just, it fascinates me. And it, it has to do with what we were talking about a minute ago, and that is adversity, right? So the things, so, so if, if, if depression is a, a genetic environmental interaction, it suggests that there's some people that may be so genetically protected that, that there isn't an environment in the world that would make them depressed. And other people are so genetically vulnerable, whatever those genes are, that, they're, you know, that the world is definitely going to make them depressed because the world's a hard place, right? But when it comes to environmental causes of depression, it, it's really adversity. It's, it's psychosocial adversity. And you know, the thing that we've studied a lot, it, it's actually immunologic adversity. Right? So one of the things I often say is that at the end of the day, depression really seems to be about managing relationships. It, it, certainly, it certainly is about relationships. It, it, is the, it is disturbances and threats in our relationships of all kinds that most reliably produce depression. So you know, in, this, in the human realm, things that, that are powerful depressogenic factors are losing somebody upon whom your self-esteem, your self 
self-vision requires. It's being shamed. It's losing. It's losing in encounters when you're up against somebody what they call agonistic encounters. If you're in a competition and you lose, the, 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 all these things that essentially at the end of the day, anything that tells a person and they believe it, that they're a failure, that they're a loser, that they're not as good as other people, that they're alone, that they, they, they're, not, they're inadequate to life. All, anything in the environment that does that really reliably increases the risk for depression. And then there's this thing called entrapment. And entrapment is this sense that you're powerless to, uh, to change your circumstances, right? And so, you know, if you're in a situation, say, where you have an abusive spouse uh, and you're getting beaten up, you're very, very likely to be depressed because interpersonal conflict is a very powerful depressive driver. If you feel that you could never escape the relationship, you will be depressed, right? So that's the sort of other element. So, so those factors are very, very powerful depressogens in our human-human interactions. But, you know, we are just a small part of the interdependent world in which we live. And we have such a powerful and intimate relationship with the microbial world. Because it's very small, we often miss it. But, but our relationship with the bugs, with uh, bacteria, parasites, viruses, is as powerful a factor in our emotional and mental well-being as our relationships with other people. You know, because, of course, how we handle those microbial agents really you know, sort of dictates whether we're going to live or die, especially across human evolution, where death from infection was by far the number one cause of you know, sort of failing to survive and reproduce. So because of that, of course, you know, any genes that evolved, that, that, that mutated to provide us with a sort of an enhanced ability to fight dying of infection, especially early in life, were selected. And it turns out, and it's one of the things we've argued, that those, those genes or those behaviors actually appear to have some benefit in, in fighting infection. So, you know, and then, of course, the other aspect of the microbial world has to do with the good bacteria, if I can put it that way, right? So, you know, we are largely composed of bacteria, and we have one of the, one of the causes that some of us speculate may be driving the increased depression in the modern world is the fact that we've so disrupted our, our sort of co-evolved relationships with this huge microbial world upon which we depended for a number of things that those disruptions, even though we don't necessarily recognize them consciously, may also be contributing to the, the, what seems to be a, something of an epidemic of depression in the modern world. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there. So I think this, you raised an interesting point. The way you, It sounds like the approach you take, it's, again, it's this mind-body approach. You're, you're unifying mind and body because I think typically the way most people think about depression, it's like that Cartesian split. Like mm-hmm. there's the there's the mind there's the mind, and then there's the body. So the, sort of the people in the body camp would say, well, depression is just a biological thing. You've got something a genetic makes you have a propensity towards depression. You just have a chemical imbalance in your brain. Here, take this Prozac; it'll make you feel better. And then on the mind side, uh, they say, well, no, depression is just a matter of cognition. You've got faulty thinking. If you go to therapy, you can fix your thinking and uh, fix your depression. It sounds like what you're saying is that. It's both. Like both things are going on. Yeah, I was going to say they're both. They're both right. Uh, <laughs> they're both right, and both perspectives are of huge. Have 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 significant clinical potential, and and somehow neither one by itself is fully enough. I mean, that's the crisis we're at in mental health care, is that you know trying to find ways to marry those two things together to leverage the strength of each perspective or each you know each system of causality, if I can put it that way. 
trying to find ways to marry these things together is is something that a number of us working in the field are really, really interested in. So, okay, here's, let's kind of walk through an example of the mind affecting the body and the body affecting the mind. So the mind affecting the body, you give an example of uh, social stressors, you experience some sort of defeat and you, you know, you think about it all the time. Everyone's had that moment where they've had some sort of defeat in their life. They lost a job, they got rejected by somebody and you just feel bad and you just think about it all the time. And that's going to affect your body, correct? Right. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And then the body parts, like the body can affect the mind by you get sick with some sort of something, some bacteria, and it causes you to feel sad and down in the dumps. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. All right. Well, let's talk about, so let's, I want to, this is, this is really, uh, it's going to be hard to suss out because this is really interesting because all this stuff, it's it's happening all at the same time possibly, right? So it's not and, like- and, and Yes, and in a loop, right? Yeah, in a loop, That's how right. That's things go, right? So, you know, the mind affects the body, the body affects the mind, which then affects the body, you know, and so you, you can get these circles going and, and, and that's part of what we think probably happens in depression where people- there's a lot of evidence that when you look at, at sort of patterns of brain functioning that that on average depression, you know, kind of biologically, one of its characteristics is that people have this sort of locked in pattern of overactivation in in areas that that are sort of fixated on danger, fixated on the self. And then you you know you kind of ruminate you just same negative thoughts over and over and over again. So this this tr- being trapped in circles is one of the characteristics of clinical depression. Okay. So let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Let's get to your idea of cause of depression, not the only cause, but a cause and that's inflammation. So I think first we got to talk about what inflammation is. I think people have a sort of kind of basic understanding. If you cut yourself, the wound becomes inflamed. It gets red around there. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper. Like what happens when your body becomes inflamed? Yeah. Okay. So, right. When I went to med school in the 80s, you know, and the immune system was really just beginning to be figured out, we thought inflammation was, you know, what you say, hot, red, painful, rubor, dolor, calor. It's kind of localized phenomena. What what sort of, you know, it's sort of street, how, it, how it's seen just in popular culture. Uh, but I think a better way to think about inflammation is step back and think about what happens when you get sick. So, think about, you know, it, 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 here you are, and you've now just picked up an invading microorganism that the immune system thinks is really a threat. The hot, red, and painful finger when you got a splinter in it is because it's trying to kill that invading thing right there at the source, right? But then, you know, let's say that fails and now it's in your body. So what are you going to do? Well, it turns out the mammalian immune systems, especially human immune systems, have two branches. They have a branch called the innate immune system and a branch called the acquired or adaptive immune system. And they, they serve different functions. The innate immune system is what, what gets fired off first. So you, you know, your body sees this dangerous thing and there's a part of your immune system that, that recognizes it very generally. It just doesn't like foreigners, basically, right? And seeing that the foreigner is there, it thinks the forest foreigner is dangerous enough, it pulls out a shotgun and starts firing. And what it fires are these very hot, angry, destructive chemicals called inflammatory cytokines. And they're pretty good at killing dangerous foreign things, but they have a lot of collateral damage. And this is why inflammation over time is associated with things like heart attacks and strokes. It's because it tears up the tissues of the body also. It also makes you prone to diabetes and things like that. But 
you need this innate immune system. It's, it's, it's sloppy, it's imprecise, but it's very fast. And there are unfortunate children born without functioning innate systems and they're dead within a week or two. So you got to have it because otherwise you, you're not fast enough off the draw to fight these dangerous um, pathogens. But we've also evolved this other immune system, this acquired or adaptive immune system. And this is what people usually mean when they talk about the immune system, which is that antibodies and T cells and things like that. And, and this is a really an amazing thing. And what it, what basically what it is, is that your body produces, you know, millions, billions of immune cells, B cells and T cells. Each one of them just randomly has a slightly different pattern on its surface. And that pattern just randomly may or may not recognize a pattern on a bacteria or a virus. But, you know, these cells kind of float around in your body. And when they see that virus or bacteria, if it's the right cell, it activates. And this, the, the shotgun immune system, the innate immune system, plays a key role in presenting the, the dangerous bacteria cells to those antibody cells and those T cells. So when those guys get activated, they um, they produce a ton of killer modalities that it, they're like snipers. They, be, they, they only fire at cells that have that mark on them. And that mark generally is not on human cells. It's generally on the, only on that virus, only on that bacteria that's invaded your body. So it's able to completely kill the bacteria or the virus and not cause you any trouble. Now, every once in a while, there's a screw up. And the T cells or the B cells mistake something in your body for a bacteria or a virus. And when that happens, you get an autoimmune condition like type 1 diabetes or multiple sclerosis or something like that. It's, you know, that's why that happens. But when things function well, what happens, you get this early shotgun immunity that is, that is fast and sloppy and just shoots at everything. But it activates this sniper-like immune system that takes four to five days to operate, to, to come up to steam. But once that system's activated, the inflammation should die down and these very specific sniper cells should take out the, the, the pathogen. And then when they're done doing that, instead of all vanishing, once your body has seen a particular virus or bacteria, the, the, the specific cells that multiplied by the millions and billions, they don't all die. A little army of them stays in the body. They're called memory T cells. And those cells patrol around. And if they ever see that invading organism again, they can immediately ramp up like a million times faster. That's how vaccines work, right? They leave you with this little army of memory T cells for hopefully the flu or for you know measles or whatever. So when we say inflammation, you can have inflammation from either arm of the immune system. But generally what we find in something like depression is hyperactivity of that shotgun immunity, right? So let's think about you getting the flu, right? So what's the first thing that happens? You know, you start feeling weird. You start feeling freezing. You, 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 know, you, you huddle up. You start getting a fever. You know, maybe you throw up. You, you feel exhausted. You got body aches. You want to sleep. You don't want to do things. It's hard to think about complicated stuff. Uh, some people start feeling down emotionally. So, you know, how does that happen? You know, it, 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 does the flu virus, you know, does it go up to your head and sort of sit in a driver's seat and start kicking on your brain? No, it doesn't do that. What it does is it activates these inflammatory cytokines, these hot inflammatory molecules. When, when that innate shotgun immune system recognizes the danger of the flu virus, it starts pumping out these inflammatory cytokines. They can make your finger hot and red, but they also go to the brain. And when they get to the brain, and this is some work we did with Andy Miller years ago, when they get to the brain, they basically cause every change in the brain that has been associated with depression. And that is why you get sick. The reason you get sick is because it's not because it 
you know, the virus wants you to get sick. Oh, contrary, it's the opposite. You, you get sick to fight the virus because those cytokines, when they activate sickness behavior, which is sort of the classic expression of inflammatory activation when it's intense, almost everything about sickness behavior has an antibiotic strategy. So the reason you get a fever when you get sick is not because it feels bad. It's because higher temperatures kill viruses and bacteria and higher body temperatures sort of drive your immune system. When you get sick, your body starts getting rid of all of its iron. It starts to try to hide away its iron. So you get anemic if it goes on long enough. So why would you get anemic? Well, the answer is because a number of bacteria, they need the, the, the iron so badly that if you can deprive them of iron, they'll starve and die in your body, right? So there's a list of things like that that all happen when people get sick. And by the way, you know, when you get the flu, you know you feel crappy for three or four or five days. That's your in, that's inflammation making you feel like that. And then, you know, one morning you wake up, you start feeling better. And the reason you're feeling better is because that that sniper-like adaptive immunity has come online, and it's uh, it's killing the uh, it's killing the virus without doing anything to you, which is why you start feeling better, right? So, the 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 realization that inflammation maybe had something to do with depression really um, it came from a couple of sources, but a primary source was this realization that inflammation produces sickness, and in animal studies. When you, when you inflame a little animal, when you inject it with one of these inflammatory cytokines in its body, it starts acting exactly the same way as if you'd put it in a terrible psychological stressor. So then people started looking around, and they made a couple of interesting discoveries. They found out that as a group, people with depression tend to have higher levels of inflammation than people that are similar but otherwise but not depressed. So it looked like there was this signal within the medically healthy people that they had elevated inflammation. And this sort of realization that, oh my goodness, you know, sickness looks a lot like depression or depression looks a lot like sickness and, and in some very interesting ways. So for instance, you know, uh, no surprise that when you get really sick, you get a fever. Not so well known that people with depression also have an elevated body temperature. Uh, they, they're hyperthermic at least and, and you treat them and their body temperature returns to normal. They tend to have the same iron deficiencies that you see in sickness. So we and others have actually argued that that maybe depression evolved out of sickness as a way to help protect us from from pathogens. So, but so anyway, this was it was this sort of line of reasoning that made many of us realize that you know, wow, if you inject people with inflammation, they get depressed. If you look at depressed people, they seem to as a group have increased inflammation. And then the coup de grace in this thing was well. Okay, you know, it makes sense. If you're sick, you get inflamed. If you get inflamed, you get depressed. So that's probably partly why medical illness is such a risk factor for depression. But what about, you know, what about stress? You know, especially younger people, they, they usually get depressed because of a psychological stressor. So starting in the kind of the early mid-2000s, people would take normal humans and, and stick them in a laboratory and give them a psychological stressor. We, we did hundreds of these back in the day. And you can show very clearly and absolutely reliably that all I have to do is take, take you, put you in a psychologically stressful situation, and I can show that it activates your inflammation. You know, within an hour, your inflammation's shooting up. And, and if you're somebody who was neglected or abused or, uh, you know, sort of traumatized as a kid, your inflammation is going to shoot up even higher, way higher, in fact, because that early adverse experience has primed your body to respond to danger with increased inflammation. So these pathways came together. And, you know, voila, that's why it has now become this sort of widely thought about idea that, 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 that depression and inflammation have something to do with each other. 
Okay, so let's talk. I want to track backtrack about this idea that these um, cytok is it cytokines, cytokines, cytokines. Yeah. So you say they get to the brain and they cause all the things that we see in depressives. So we're talking. I mean, does like it disrupt neurotransmitter stuff? Does it change the structure yeah, of the brain? Yep, yep. Is that, is that oh, what's yeah. going on? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they. Uh, inflammation wipes out a, a necessary cofactor for neurotransmitter production. Uh, and does it change like structures of the brain? So you've heard those things. People who are depressed have a, a sensitive, sensitive amygdala, the, the almond mm-hmm. shape thing. Mm-hmm. Does inflammation affect that? Yep, yep. It, it, it absolutely does. It also induces brain changes similar to those seen in depression. Absolutely. Does it change the structure of the brain? That's a good question i've uh you know it's like everything where you know this is such a huge field now i've never seen a study that it actually changes you know like the size of the brain um or or something like that we but but uh, but the activity of the brain absolutely and and my old mentor andy miller at emory who's really i think the king of this field in so many ways has shown that if you take just a big group of normal, medically healthy, depressed people and you measure their inflammation, the people that are depressed and have high inflammation have very different patterns of brain function than the people that are depressed without inflammation. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. The year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted that by now we'd be teleporting to work, living on Mars, still waiting for that hoverboard. And a lot of those predictions were wrong. Truth is, we'll always get the future wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right. And that's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. And Policy Genius doesn't make life insurance easy or just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance too. I wish I would have had Policy Genius when I was buying disability insurance. That was a lot of rigmarole comparing. And then also just the paperwork I had to do for that it would have been nice to have someone help me with it. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. Better get life insurance right. Turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more. Squarespace is the tool for you. They got great looking templates created by world-class designers, and you have the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can get a great looking site in just a few minutes. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online, and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And buying domains is simple with Squarespace. And if you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support, if you ever get stuck, Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. I go to Squarespace whenever I got to create like a really quick website. Did this for my wife when she was in charge of her 20th high school reunion. Use Squarespace, got a website up, use their e-commerce functionality to sell the tickets. Took me about 15 to 30 minutes. It was really fast. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain at squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. So how, why does our body, when we experience psychological stress, why does it create inflammation? Because I think people, when they think of stress, they think of cortisol, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't think, oh, my body's going to act like it's sick and send out inflammation signals. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, you'd think, right, that when the going gets tough, the tough would get going. 
And, you know, sometimes when I give lectures, I, I, I will spend the whole beginning sort of trying to get people to marvel at this remarkable fact that we have this weird inflammatory bias. You know, we think of inflammation making us tired and sick and maybe not think straight. You know, if you're being chased by the saber-toothed cat, for God's sakes, why would you want that? But I, I think the answer is, and and a number of us sort of hit upon this at sort of the same time. The the evolutionary answer we believe is that if you think about what stress has meant across mammalian evolution, um, and even before the mammals, but we just stick to our, our ourselves here. You know, stress reliably meant usually one of three things, right? Either either you're about to be eaten, or you are chasing down something to eat and that thing has got horns and hoofs or you know you're wanting to make a baby and you're having to fight with the other guy with horns and hoofs and so you know in all of those situations cuz other than that you know most animals tend to like kind of hang out right they sleep or they they just hang out and and so so stress the argument goes that stress was so reliably associated with the risk of wounding over evolutionary history, that genes that evolved to to prepotently and 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 sort of jump the gun, activate inflammation in response to stress, were selected because you know if you directly die from the stressful encounter from the wounding, well, whatever you're dead. But mo- many many times organisms would survive and then they die of infection because skin is the greatest of all immunologic organs and. And one of the absolute number one best ways to die before there were antidepressants was to get your skin opened up. And of course, now we know with the failure of antibiotics, this is becoming more and more of a risk again, right? It's terrifying. So so the reason that inflammation, that stress activates inflammation is stress has been a reliable signal that you're in danger of having your skin opened up. If your skin gets opened up, you're very likely to, to get an infection and that puts you at risk for dying. So rather than sitting around and waiting for it to happen, we are going to jump the gun. It's called smoke alarm principle, right? And and we're going to turn on inflammation to be ahead of the game and to be ready for the the immunologic damage uh, or the, the the pathogen exposure we think is going to happen, right? And of course, you know, if you do false alarms a thousand times, yeah, you may you may incur some tissue cost from the inflammatory chemicals, but you know, all you got to do is not respond once, and you're dead. And so it's like this thing called the smoke alarm principle. So what we're looking at here, of course, is an evolutionary mismatch in the modern world, which is that for many of us, especially in first world countries, stress does not very often anymore mean that you're at risk for being wounded. You know, humans tend to make things that are concrete abstract. That's one of the great things our brain does. And so, you know, now all these psychological stressors that are no longer associated with wounding still activate those ancient pathways. They still activate those ancient reactions and produce inflammation, even though the inflammation is of no value as far as we can tell and is actually detrimental. So that's it's a good case of an environmental mismatch that we are the inheritors of because the, the world has changed so fast in, in modern times. Evolution hasn't been able to catch up. All right, so there's psychological stress, but there's also other kinds of stress too, like physical stress from exercise. That creates inflammation in the body as well, but it also makes you feel good. So what's going on in the dynamic there? So this has been my little, you know, uh, it's funny how we all have our little sort of areas that are fascinomas for us. That is true. That is a very fascinating observation. So we know that exercise acutely 
activates inflammation. Uh, you know, early on when you asked me what I, who I was and what I did, I said that I kind of studied ancient practices. And one of the other antidepressant things we've studied is hyperthermia, heat. And we have shown, and now it's been replicated by others, that in fact, if you expose humans to kind of a, to a really heat stressor for a time-limited period, it produces an antidepressant effect. I mean, that's why people go to saunas, right? Steam rooms and stuff. So we measured inflammation before and after taking depressed people and sticking them in this, this hyperthermia machine. And lo and behold, it, it didn't activate the whole inflammatory cascade. It activated something that looked a lot like what exercise does. And there was a signal in there that the more that inflammation got activated, the better people felt, the less undepressed, the more undepressed they were a week later. So there's a little bit of a mystery here. And and it, some of us, including me, think that the answer actually can be seen in exercise. That, you know, if you look, what does exercise do? It, it, it Acutely, it raises inflammation. What does it do chronically? It lowers inflammation. And so I think for many of these systems, what happens is you can actually um, – strengthen them or toughen them or in some cases downregulate them by certain types of acute repeated exposure right so so there may be cases in which brief exposure to stimuli that induce inflammation may actually have benefits for depression years ago back in 95 or 96 there was a small study out of germany published in biological psychiatry, where they, they took a very small study, they only took seven people, but these were really, really depressed inpatients. They were in a psychiatric hospital. And they they did something really cool. They they shot them up with a bunch of inflammation into their veins and basically made the people sick. And every single one of them had a powerful antidepressant response. It it didn't last in most of them, but in several of them they actually continued to feel better for days and days afterwards. So you know, what we can say is that when you're chronically inflamed, it's a pretty powerful risk factor for depression. There may be some instances, for reasons we don't fully understand, where an acute inflammatory stimuli might actually have mood protective effects. So it's like the hair of the dog. Sort of like the hair of the dog. Well said. Yeah, yeah that's right. So this, this sauna research, is it? have you guys figured out like how long you need to stay in a sauna for it to have that effect? Is it like five minutes, no, 10 minutes? No, 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 no. Well, so, so the, the, sh- the, the short answer is no, we have not figured that out. My colleague, Ashley Mason at University of California, San Francisco, is gearing up to do studies now that will, that will really begin to try to look at that. We, we got into this. It was sort of interesting. I, I had two young colleagues who were graduate students of mine in Austria, of all places. I used to teach there episodically. And they, uh, they worked at a, a sort of non-traditional psychiatric hospital that did mind-body treatments. And one of them was an engineer. He found an old hyperthermia machine in a basement rebuilt it and we decided to stick depressed people in it and we did we, we we cooked them up and we saw this really you know striking antidepressant response that was uh, you could see it five six seven days after a treatment so we we i brought one of the guys to the united states and we we got another fancy machine and we did it really well with a control condition and all this stuff and we saw exactly the same thing now the thing was though we we in 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 switzerland we had treated people to uh, to basically a, a core body temperature of 101.3, uh, 38.5 centigrade, it worked. And since it worked there, we did the same thing in the United States. But we never we never did a dose response study, so we never looked to see you know well what if we cooked you up more would it would it would it work even better? Thirty eight point five core body temperature, one hundred one point three is the upper end 
of what's classified as mild hyperthermia, you, you get people much hotter than that. And you start, the, the health risks begin to sort of increase significantly. So we, we think that that's a good marker for uh, a, a temperature, core body temperature that we, you know, really seems to have an antidepressant response. We did, the, well, the study we did in Arizona was kind of cool because we had this nice, nice comparative condition where we, we put people into the same machine and we had fake lights and, and, but we gave them a little bit of heat. There were some coils at the bottom of the box and we wanted to fool them and we did, we fooled the majority of them, but it actually warmed them up too. And so, you know, the people's body temperature, the, the, the placebo condition wasn't really a full placebo. They actually warmed up a little bit, but they didn't have nearly as big an antidepressant response. So I think we can say based on that, that the data at this point suggests that, that if you wanted to do it, you should, you know, you should, you should get yourself a rectal thermometer and, and, and <laughs> see if you, actually, people, that's usually the end of the discussion, but, you know, see if you can get yourself up to like, 101.3. And the way we did it in study was we just, we got people up to 38.5 and, and we, we, the temperature was assessed with a rectal probe every, I think, 30 seconds. And when they had two or three 38.5s, we turned the machine off and then we just sort of let them sit there for an hour to, because the body temperature remained elevated. You're not going to get to 101.3 by five minutes in a sauna. With this machine, it took people on average about 90 minutes, so more than an hour. The machine is, was designed to be more comfortable so it, you know, it wasn't like you know, like a hellish sauna where your face is on fire and you're dying. You know, uh, so uh, we don't know. Uh, you know, Ashley, my colleague out in in California, has been working with these infrared saunas, and yeah, but it takes you got to stay there for a while, man. It, it, it's, you're going to commit an hour to it, probably at least, to try to get up to that temperature. And so you mentioned you've been exploring other sort of ancient practices that humans have used that might have antidepressive benefits to it. So there's, there's saunas. People have been doing mm-hmm. that for a long time. Exercise is one. Any Absolutely. other practices that you found that may have an anti-inflammatory, anti-depressive benefit? Well, yes. And, and so there's one that I am personally fascinated by, and I, I just don't have the bandwidth uh, to, to, to study it. You know, it's interesting. And that is intermittent fasting. And I bet you've talked about that a lot on your, your program probably. We have, yeah. Yeah, because it's one of these things that's sort of hip right now. But there's some really interesting data I'm thinking of one study in particular where they took a bunch of kind of normal dudes and fasted them and measured the activity of this thing called the inflammasome, which is sort of the, the initiating biological mechanism within cells that turns on inflammation. And you fast them, and man, the activity I think drops, 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 and then they fed them and it up, 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 right? Which makes sense, right? You think about, you know, inflammation, like the brain, is charged with this large task of trying to, to figure out, you know, what is the self and what are its boundaries? And, and, and how do I maintain the integrity of the self, especially when that integrity requires that I let foreign things in, right? So, you know, food is a massive danger. And, you know, still to this day, there's a, a bunch of people that die every year from food poisoning at restaurants in the United States. You know, I mean, food is a foreign object. It is, it, it's often, it, you know, carries, you know, back, you know, organisms that can be dangerous. So, of course, it makes sense that when you eat, you are putting an inflammatory stressor on your body. You're also putting a thermal stressor on your body. So every time you eat, you kind of run a little fever. You have to, you, you, you have to, it's called diet-induced thermogenesis. You kind of got to burn it off. So yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is probably the case that fasting has anti-inflammatory properties. I, I know from my buddy Rob Knight, who's one of the kings of the microbiome, that, that fasting is also 
probably the fastest way to alter your microbiome in ways that we think of as being positive. And so it's interesting, you know, there's a couple of small studies now suggesting that fasting, intermittent fasting, has antidepressant properties. And there's there's a larger database where they, they, they fasted people. And, and sometimes, you know, much more than this sort of, you know, 18 hours or 12 hours without eating. You know, people go for a couple of days in some of these studies. But man, it pretty pretty reliably, people's mood really increases. You know, you know the first day kind of stinks. You're, you know, there's, there's a hump. But when people get over the hump, they often develop this this sort of really elevated mood. Well, so you've, you've been researching these ancient practices, but someone might be listening, okay, depression, inflammation's involved. Can I just pop like an anti, like an Advil or get a steroid uh, shot and reduce inflammation and reduce my depression? Yes, that's such a great question. And, and I'm so glad you asked it because there's really something important to say about that based on the literature we've seen so far. That is this. Well, okay, so we back up. So we did a study where we, we decided we were going to really test whether depression was an inflammatory condition. We were going to give depressed people a really powerful anti-inflammatory agent, not like Advil or a steroid shot, but I mean one of these things. It used to be marketed as Remicade. It's called infliximab. It, it, it has no other effects other than completely wiping out one of the two primary pro-inflammatory cytokines. It just it kills inflammation, which is why these drugs are so good for Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis and stuff like that. So we took 60 depressed people. We gave half of them three infusions of this infliximab to block their, their inflammatory cytokine. We gave the other half three infusions of salt water and, and nobody knew who was getting what. And then we followed them for 12 weeks and 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 you know. The results were quite striking. The salt water worked a little better than the anti-inflammatory agent. It wasn't significant, but the salt water had a very powerful antidepressant effect. You talk about the power of placebo because these were people that had failed other antidepressants. But we saw something really interesting. And this is the important point. The placebo and, and the anti-inflammatory cytokine blocker, the, if you looked at the, the, the two groups, their, their effect on depression was almost identical, but it wasn't because they were the same. They were actually opposite. And so before we gave people the first shot, we measured their inflammation. And we found that if you were depressed and had high inflammation, the, uh, the infliximab, the cytokine antagonist, worked you know, significantly better than the placebo. But... If you were just as depressed and had lower inflammation, and this was two-thirds of this study population, you did so much better with salt water than infliximab that, that the only conclusion we could draw is that, you know, if you're really depressed but your inflammation is not elevated, blocking it further is doing something bad for you. It 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 it's it's it, at the very least it's making you not able to respond to placebo. So it's it's interfering with your ability to hope and to trust and to whatever placebo response is. And there, there have been a number of studies, several studies after this that that have sort of shown the same thing. One in particular from Mark Rappaport, who's the chair down at Emory. He did the what will forever be probably the world's largest study of omega three fatty acids, um, just as a single treatment for depression. You know, no antidepressants, just placebo or omega three fatty acids. And the fatty acids didn't work for squat. They they don't they don't have general antidepressant effects. But but he took a a page from our lesson book and and looked at their inflammation levels before they started the omega threes. He saw exactly the same thing that if you are depressed with elevated inflammation, the omega three worked better than placebo, but 
if you were just as depressed and had lower inflammation, you you want a placebo. You don't want to be taking omega three fatty acids. So you know if 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 those are true results, you know omega three fatty acids may help your heart. But if you're really depressed and you're one of the at least half or maybe two thirds of people that do not have elevated inflammation, you know taking omega three fatty acids, you're probably not doing yourself any favors. So no, we me I do not suggest that people routinely try anti-inflammatories for depression at this point. Caveat, there is a, a good study from a guy named Jonathan Savitz at the Laureate Brain Institute where he looked at low-dose aspirin versus something called minocycline, which is an antibiotic, which is an anti-inflammatory versus placebo. The minocycline only worked in people with elevated inflammation, just what you'd predict. But the aspirin worked in everybody. And it's not because it's an anti-inflammatory at that low dose. It's doing something else. We don't know what. You know, so there's a little bit of evidence. If you're going to do something, you know, off the grid, that taking low dose aspirin may have some antidepressant benefit. So then, of course, the next question everybody asks is, well, okay, well, shoot, you know, should I go get my inflammation measured? And my answer these days is, well, maybe. Five years ago, I'd say no, it's too preliminary. But you know, there's a thing called C-reactive protein or CRP. You can get it easily done. It's a standard lab test. It's standardized. And it'll give you a pretty good readout on your inflammation. You know, if it's elevated, you're more likely to die of a heart attack and a stroke. You're more likely to get diabetes and depression and dementia. And it tends to be elevated and depressed people. Another reason why it's an interesting inflammatory biomarker is there's now a couple of studies, including some work that I've done, showing that it can predict whether you're going to respond to Prozac or not, right? And so there are now a couple of studies, one of them fairly large actually, suggesting that if you just get this simple inflammatory measure, C-reactive protein or CRP, if it's elevated, elevated here is like a level greater than one, one milligram per liter, you don't tend to respond to SSRIs, you know, the serotonin antidepressants like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexapro, uh, Selexa, those are the brand names. But if, you're, if your CRP is elevated, you're more likely to respond to something that has dopamine properties, um, something like, for instance, Wellbutrin, which is uh, the generic of that is bupropion. Or in one study, it was nortriptyline, which is more of a norepinephrine drug, but it's a complicated, but it fits the pattern, right? But I think the key here is that, you know, almost all of us get depressed, get stuck on a drug where the primary mechanism of action is blocking the serotonin reuptake site. And there is now this gathering data to suggest that, you know, if your inflammation's elevated, you're not you're not as likely to respond to those. And then we've shown recently, working with uh, actually a large pharmaceutical company, that CRP can predict people who do and don't respond to a very different kind of drug that's used to treat bipolar disorder when people are depressed. A, it's a drug called lorazidone. It's marketed as Latuda. It's an atypical antipsychotic. It's a dopamine modulating agent. And we measured CRP before before people started treatment with it versus placebo. And uh, man, you know, if your CRP is low, the uh, the the antipsychotic Latuda was no better than placebo, but if your CRP was high, it worked like gangbusters as an antidepressant. And we we've replicated that not perfectly, but but we about three quarters of the way replicated it in another large population of children with bipolar depression. So so this is sort of interesting, right? That that it's not quite ready for prime time. But it's ready enough, and you know that the only risk is a blood stick. That that I now often say, yeah, you know, I think this is actually something worth doing. Is you know, look at the CRP levels. If you're trying to decide what antidepressant to use, 
you know, we need larger studies, a lot of caveats, but you're going to pick one eeny, meeny, myo, any, you know, just randomly anyway. Yeah, take a look. You know, if, you're, if your inflammation is elevate, elevated, reach for something other than an SSRI. In general, I'm not hugely overwhelmed with anti-inflammatory agents as antidepressants. Even in our big study, yeah, it beat placebo, but it, it was not a miracle cure. You know, it, inflammation is a widespread, ancient process, and it sets in motion a lot of downstream changes, and almost certainly those downstream changes are going to be more directly involved in the production of depression, and those pathways probably, probably make better targets um, than inflammation itself. Well, I think it's an important point to make that you to bring out as you were talking about those studies about the the effectiveness of antidepressants based on your CRP levels is that you can be depressed but not inflamed mm-hmm. or inflamed and not depressed, right? Absolutely. Both okay. are very true. Because I, I think people could hear this like, oh, inflammation, depression. Mm-hmm. I just go to my doctor. Hey, doctor, I'm inflamed. I'm going to do yep. sit in the sauna. That's going to cure. But that might not be, you might not be inflamed, but still can be depressed. Absolutely. Most, most depressed people are not inflamed. So why is that? Why, why do some people get inflamed when they're depressed and some people get depressed but not inflamed? Don't know. So this conversation, what this research shows is that, okay, again, there's no single cause for depression, right. but it's all these different things working together. So as a doctor or maybe someone who's got depression, like how do you figure out the best approach to help a patient? Like I think at the end of the book, you gave some case studies, which was really interesting walking through, yeah. but like, is it just a matter of trying different things to see what sticks or have you kind of figured out a systematic way where you can find the, the, the thing or things that will help? Mm, no, no, unfortunately. So my opinion, uh, but I know the field pretty well. Whenever you hear anybody talking in depression, that they're going to treat you with a brain scan or they're going to do a brain scan and tell you what to take or that they've got an algorithm that is guaranteed to work. No, that's BS. Now, it, it works sometimes because it induces a great deal of hope and trust and optimism and, and, and those are very powerful effects. But the, the the biology of it is always just really shaky. So, you know, the, the truth of the matter still is that we don't know ahead of time really who's going to respond to what. You know, the little CRP is a little caveat there. If it, if it really gets replicated, it, it would be ironic that our first reliable predictive biomarker is not a brain thing, but an immune system thing. But no, you know, the real question these days for me is whether you start somebody on an antidepressant and send them down that path. Um, Because I think that the continental divide in the treatment of depression really is around this issue of, do you do something that sort of helps people build up resiliency within their own mind, body, brain complex that's not dependent on a constant presence of an external substance? Or do you go the other route where you fortify people with a, a drug that is kind of always on the brain and always there. These are things I never would have thought of 15, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I thought antidepressants were like brain food. I thought they were like, you know, fertilizer for the brain. Unfortunately, we now know that 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 when antidepressants really help people, which they do, no doubt about it, and they're lifesavers, no doubt about that. But in our time and place, many, many people, once they've kind of gone down the antidepressant path, find that they don't do very well if they go off the antidepressants. Um, that they, there, there are really convincing data that starting an antidepressant and stopping it 
is more likely to make you depressed in the future than having never started it in the first place. Oddly, placebo responses are more durable than antidepressant responses when you take away the placebo or the antidepressant. Psychotherapy responses, while not perfect, are also more durable. One of my huge interests in psychedelics is not just the fact that they have a different mechanism of action in terms of inducing psychedelic states, but you know they, they seem to one treatment lasts six, seven, eight hours, and then in certain populations, especially now, there's a study out from NYU. You know, people report being undepressed three, four years later. It's it's like it, it was a reset, right? And and that, of course, is what we should be looking for because, you know, any drug that you take every day that operates on the brain seems to induce what's been called oppositional tolerance, which is the brain begins pushing back against the drug. You know, this is why you get withdrawal reactions, right? You know, if you, if you take a Valium every day for, for, you know, if you take that for a long period of time and you stop it suddenly, you'll have a seizure because what's Valium doing? It's, it's constantly pushing on the brain to calm it down. Well, the brain begins to kind of fight back. It kind of gears up, right? And, and, and so then you get this sort of compromise between the, the pushing down of the, the Valium and the pushing back the brain and then you take away the Valium real suddenly and the, the pushing back of the brain is unopposed and it goes hyper excitable and you get seizures and stuff like that, right? Antidepressants, it's not as dramatic, but lots of people have withdrawal reactions and that, that what that tells you is that, that the brain is sort of... Be- you could say it's become dependent on it, but I like better this idea that the brain has begun to come to some sort of balance with the antidepressant that puts the brain in a place where it's trying to overcome the antidepressant effects almost. You take away the antidepressant and that that overcoming thing is unopposed and, you know, um, people have a very, very high rate of crashing back into depression. You know, one of the surest way to make people depressed if they're not depressed is to suddenly stop their antidepressant. So, this is the thing, you know. I'm a I'm a I'm a pharmaceutical. I'm a drug doctor. I mean, the only the only real expertise I have clinically is you know writing writing prescriptions for psychotropic agents, and uh, you know I've seen a lot of patients over the years, and I can promise you that God, man, damn, some people these agents really work great for. You know, another problem is that they they probably don't work optimally for at least fifty percent of people. But you know, they, there's a lot of people get a huge benefit. But I worry increasingly about anything that the human side becomes utterly dependent on. We, we tend to then, tends to weaken the, the human element. And then this is where you see this increased risk of relapse and such. So I've gotten more and more interested in, in how we can begin to find treatments for depression that instead of inducing some sort of state of dependency where the human is now joined like almost like a cyborg to the technology, say the antidepressant, that what we've done is found a technology that actually strengthens people, stimulates them, you know, so that the this intervention drops away, but the person is now in a self-sustaining state of enhanced wellness. And it's promising. You know, this is it looks like there are ways of doing this. I mean, the hyperthermia, the heat showed a little bit of that signal. People felt better for weeks afterwards. So, you know, it it's it but again, another very long answer to say that no, we do not as a field, have a magic formula. If you come to see me and you're depressed, I listen to you. I think about what the situation is. I wonder about what to do. But there's not a, a cookbook that gives me all the answers. So, but you're going to do things like, uh, as you said, like maybe, maybe well, you're going to ask more things about like, are, do you have any sort of sickness? Like you might, like that's something that doctors typically mm-hmm. don't ask whenever they a patient comes in saying, I'm depressed. They never ask about, well, are you, are you inflamed? Have you been sick? That might be a thing they might start thinking about now. 
No, it, Absolutely. And it might not be the thing that determines it, but it's another factor they'll, they'll, they might want to consider. Well, so I'll give you a quick story. One of my partner's closest friends has a mom who's had a history of very, very difficult bipolar disorder, lots of depressions and manias. She's older. She's probably 78. She develops a cataclysmic depression about two months ago. I mean, a woman becomes catatonic. She's not eating. She's not talking. She, when she does talk, she says, you know, please put the pillow over my head and kill me. I want to die. They try antidepressants. They were going to go for shock therapy, but she'd failed that in the past. They started giving her ketamine, you know, this new treatment. And then, you know, somebody gets an x-ray and her lungs are riddled with um, cancer and she's dying, right? So there's a classic example of that. Now, you you can't do anything about it particularly, but it, it would have helped the family back in time, they could have been been spared a month of this sort of like, you know, oh my God, you know, our mom has such horrible depression, it's terrible, should we let her die, you know, all this stuff. When, you know, yes, she had a horrible depression, so she had a vulnerability and it was launched by the fact that she was having massive inflammatory response to the cancer. So I've literally just lived through what you're talking about. And so absolutely, yes, that's absolutely something they should ask about. The other thing, that they should ask about, but good luck because the doctor only has like four or five minutes to see you just economically, you know, but they should also ask you like, uh, you know, what's going wrong in your life? Because, you know, depression can come out of the blue. That definitely happens. But most of the time, especially if people haven't been depressed a bunch of times before, there's a story there. And people won't tell you the story right away. You know, I used to call it the, oh, by the way, phenomenon, you know, they bury the lead. Depression is often a narrative disorder. There's often a story that's driving it. And and helping people with that can be profoundly powerful as a treatment, actually. So it's the same thing of, of like, you know, ask about the sickness. Well, you ask it. I mean, logic adversity, sickness, and intersex social adversity. And they both are the powerful drivers of depression. Well, Charles, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Yes, they can go. I'm going to give you a couple of just names if people Google this, they can find it. They can go to what's called the Center for Healthy Minds uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They can go to the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They can go to the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And then if they're interested in the psychedelics, they can go to the website for USONA, that's U-S-O-N-A Institute. You can find out about me at all those sites. And, and you know, it's, it's, I, if you just Google me, uh, you'll find me pretty quickly. I, you'll, I, you can listen to me ad nauseum say a lot of this, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty easy to find. Well, Charles, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. I have great questions, man. My guest today was Dr. Charles Raison. He is a psychiatrist and the co-author of the book, The New Mind-Body Science of Depression. It's available on Amazon.com. Also, just Google his name, like he said. You can find out more of the work that he does and the research he's done on the topic of inflammation and depression. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash inflammation depression, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. Got a whole series about depression and men on the site, so go check that out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free-month trial. Once you're signed up, you can download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS. Start enjoying new episodes of the AOM Podcast ad-free. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. 
you, please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the AON Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. 